relationship? What does that look like for us in our practical lives? Um, Jesus came for a real-time issue with a real-time solution. And you, I was actually thinking about this earlier, and, and that's, I think, what's so beautiful about in, in our church, that during the singing time and, and whenever, there's kids. Because it's, it's very real. If, I hope no one ever thinks, well, why don't we just get a cry room? Right? That's, that's not what we want in our church. Because children are real. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. And that's what we want at our church. Right? As long as we keep trying to push things out into a cry room, we're never going to address what's real. And Jesus didn't push the world into the cry room of the universe, but Jesus came in to the world and addressed it with a real solution. So that's what we're here. What do we do when we look in and, and we see the world as it is? Um, we can't see Jesus any longer in, this, in his practical solution as this, uh, this man with fair complexion, flowing hair, and ambiguous hands being held out, right? Jesus is very purposeful in what he does, and so as we, as we listen to the words of Scripture, we want to be receiving from them the specific message that is in them. Because we'll never see the promise of Scripture fulfilled when we always leave it up to our own preferences. And that's, that's really the verses, uh, what these verses that we're dealing with today are telling us. That as long as we allow in the relationship between uh, husband and wives or children and their fathers, as, as long as we allow these relationships to be left up to our personal preferences, they will always be, they will always be uh, dangerous to themselves. These relationships will be dangerous to themselves. And so what we, what we need to ask is, God, what are you... Uh, what do you want from this? What, what is your pleasure? God, as we serve you, as Christ is in us, what does this look like in these relationships? Um, I think the reason why this remains so ungraspable to us still is because we continue to treat Jesus like he is merely an idea. And, and there's a story I heard recently that g- gives an illustration of this. And it was a... <coughs> Excuse me. It was a story of uh, this girl and boy got in a relationship, uh, true story, and they were in a youth group. This relationship didn't know where else to go, so it just became more and more intimate over time. Eventually, they were doing things they were ashamed of. They went to their youth pastor to talk about it. Their youth pastor, uh, when, when they had expressed this to him, he said, Oh, well, I, I know... I know that was the case. And they said, well, how did you know? He said, well, see, because someone saw you when you were, when you were having these, these times of intimacy that you shouldn't have. And they, they were aghast. Right? They were like, what in the world? Who saw us? And they, they, they were filled with fear all of a sudden, fear that they didn't have before. And the youth pastor said, yeah, well, Jesus saw you when you were doing that. And what was their response? Oh, no more fear. Of course Jesus saw us, Right? That's, uh, we know that. I mean, we grew up in Sunday school. And that's the way we treat it. We treat Jesus like he is merely an idea, not one who 
His presence is here, and he looks upon us, and he can receive displeasure that we're doing. And, and even our actions can bring harm to the intimacy that we have with God himself. So, what, what we need to enter this time with is understanding that Christ in you is not theory. As long as you let it be theory, none of these, uh, none of these practices that were, is being talked about here will make sense to you at all. Because, because you won't be changed at all. You can't be changed by theory. You won't be. But what, what is presented in the Bible is real relationship with God himself that will enter your life and do something with it that isn't possible outside of that. There's no way that this could happen inside you unless Christ is actually in you. So, put simply, uh, we have... Um, Issues, and we don't know what it looks like to have issues because we've lived with them for so long. Um, and as, as Paul begins to discuss what this could look like for this to change in us, um, he, uh, he discusses this by way of addressing two relationships in our daily lives, one being husbands and wives and one's being uh, parents and children um, and this is really important because both of these are deal with the family. And the family essentially is this building block of the community. The family is the community. And we'll find at the end that, that it is because God is really uh, generous with his idea of what the family is. Right? When Jesus, when somebody, uh, his family came to him and, and tried taking him away from preaching. He said, no, these are my mothers and these are my brothers here. So Jesus is very general. So as we're looking at this, understand, too, that the family is the building block of the community and Jesus is very generous in the way he sees the family. So first, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. So this is going to sound a little bit like a marriage ceremony for a little bit. Um, that's okay, though, because the marriage ceremony was meant to be the beginning of a lot of things, not the end of a lot of things. So wives, submit to your husbands. This verse leaves no way around it. No way around the submission. Uh, wives... It's asking you to be a blessing and not a curse to your husbands, um, to contribute uh, support to your husband's passion and wisdom to his thinking. Set yourselves to honor him and respect him. Support him as he sets to lead the family and let him know that he's not alone in doing this. This is taken in an understanding that in the beginning God made them male and female. And so this isn't meant to be something where man is the master. Because when God made man and woman in his image, the, the idea of them was together. Okay? 
But then when that was played out in creation, as we see right there in chapter 2, it's played out differently. So, so man is created first, and, he, and then he sees his need of woman. If they were, if they were made together, there, there wouldn't have been this searching of Adam saying, okay, this is, I feel strangely lacking. Right? Everything is good, but oh, it's not good for me to be alone. So while both of them created an image of God, we find even here that there is one master and there is one sovereign, and that is Jesus Christ. Um, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to those who belong to the Lord. The word there is kurios, which means supreme authority. So even in this verse, Jesus is the supreme authority. It's not man who's the supreme authority. But it's not a woman who's the supreme authority. Who is the supreme authority? Jesus is the supreme authority. And until we give Jesus respect, we will never submit to each other. Right? When, I, when I was going through this, I kept thinking, at what point will we submit? Right? Whenever we hear the word submit, the first thing that comes to our, our mind is, why? Are they more powerful? Right? Will we never just submit out of love and respect? And that's, that's truly what is being asked of wives to their husbands. <coughs> and it is put here specifically in this order. Um, Ephesians 5.21, it, it does say, uh, submit to one another out of fear and reverence for Christ. So is, there is a submitting to one another. right? So men are meant to be submitting to the wives also. But this is not ambiguous. right? This isn't, Okay, submit to another and just, and just decide whatever that might look like in your relationship. No, there's still intended uh, meaning for a man and a woman to have in their relationship together. That if, if one abdicates their role, the relationship is at a lack. Okay, so it's not saying that the man is the wiser one in the relationship. Because that might not always be the case. Maybe more often it's not the case. It's not saying that man is just the, the more bravado one that's just ready to be emotionally strong and rah, right? That's also not what it's saying. But what it is saying, as we see this played out in creation, is as man was created and man was given the, the first law, don't eat from the tree, and then Eve was created, he was meant to be a voice of of teaching and authority in the home. To be able to say to the house, this is good and this is righteous, and, and I want the whole family to rise up under this, right? He is meant to be a form of blessing to his, husband, uh, to his whole household, right? And so his wife can look to him as a means of moral voice, right? And that's, that's the way it was created. So he wasn't, it wasn't an ambiguous role like, well, well, who does this? Well, men, you're supposed to do that as husbands. You're supposed to be one that is willing to teach and lead and not to abdicate that. It's not meant to be a, a role of question. Well, let's just, you know, let's just figure out how this works out. The, the Bible has spoken into the life of marriages. Husbands do this. Wives do this. And as we, as we look at the scripture, we're meant to receive life from that. We are, we are sickened and maddened and confused from always asking first what our pleasure and preference is in the world. And that's, 
I, it's, does so much damage to relationships that we see in the world because we're always asking what our preference is first. And what we're not first asking is what, pleased the, what pleases the Lord. Because if what pleases the Lord is, wives well, submit to your husbands, are you willing to do that? And really then it comes down to a matter of respect. Do you respect God at all? I think that would be health, <coughs> healthy if we ask ourselves that often. What is God asking of me and do I respect him? We've, we've, we've made everything a matter of free choice. We are, there's a cult of free choice in America, of free will. Right? We love to talk about free will, but we hate to talk about submission. Even though the fact is that there's promises that you will never understand and never receive unless you submit yourselves to the desire of God, right? Because he knows what's good, right? So pursue that in your lives. Husbands, to submit to your wife, says, Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. The mark of a Christian husband is to be filled with love for his wife. The life of a husband is found in giving his life for his wife. And so there's a real unique relationship here where the, the wife is submitting herself to one who is giving his life for her. Right? Isn't that amazing? So, so oftentimes there's this there's this real, um, uh, I don't know, fear of submission. And it's a, it's a, there's a different word for it than that. There's a, um, there's a discomfort that we hear with the word submission. But what is being asked of both is submission to one that is giving his life. And so this looks... Um, In the way Paul talks about love, this, this is what it looks like. Love is patient. What does that mean? Right? Well, it means there's going to be a death to your own time. Right? If you're patient, out of love for someone else, that means your schedule, something's happened to it. Right? <laughs> because patience doesn't come if your schedule is God. Patience come if God is God and you're serving Him and you're serving those that you're around. Uh, what this looks like if you're kind is there's a death to any form of meanness in your life. Right? So you're, you're giving those things that maybe have been a, such a part of your life and such a part of your character that you're saying, I'm, I'm giving this. This is getting put to death in me. Why? Because I love. Because, because God loved me and gave Himself up for me. Now there's this... There's this uh, model I have to follow, right, of, of, who, uh, of who Christ is and who Christ is asking me to do. And what I didn't mention actually in the, in the submission was that Christ is our model there too, right? He, he learned obedience through what he suffered through his submission to the Father, it talks about in Hebrews 5. Right? Philippians 2, that's what it's all about. It says uh, that that consider him who, in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Right? Consider him. Consider Jesus. And so that's why you're doing what you're doing. Right? In, in this, a lot of modern feminism, there's this idea of submission can't happen because, um, because I'm, I'm a woman. Right? Well, think about Jesus. He couldn't be a servant because he's God. No, his, his godhood was defined by his desire to save a people and that being played out in his servanthood. Okay? So, uh, with that, I read that there's... Uh, that wives are asked to allow their husbands to give their life for them and even to, to support them in that. I said it's, it looks ridiculous for the modern woman who won't allow a man to open the door for her, but expects a husband to give their life for them, right? So if, if you won't even allow the person to do kind gestures towards you, don't expect him to give his life for you, right? You want to encourage those behaviors in somebody for them to actually serve you. Um, let it be a blessing to you. The word literally... And this word uh, love here is to treat her as beloved or, or the Hebrew equivalent it said was, is to breathe after her, which sounds kind of creepy, <laughs> I admit. But <laughs> the thing of this, Paul could never be accused, if you read the epistles, you can never accuse Paul of being a romantic, right? But, but when he's stating the facts as facts, the facts are here in a relationship man and a wife are romantic, right? To breathe after her. He, he won't get around that fact when it sounds like, like this continuation of the marriage vows because it is, that's the desire of God. The desire of God isn't that you're constantly trying to figure out how to get out of those, right? The desire of God is that you're constantly figuring out how to fulfill those. So Paul, though, is not naive, and that's what we could assume from the first part of this. The second part of this is um, never treat them harshly or as the, the King James says, um, do not be bitter against them. Right? So Paul isn't naive and he's just going, okay, happily ever after, go for it. You know? <laughs> what he's saying is uh, the, the kind of submission that love calls for can easily, easily be turned into bitterness when it is not responded to. Because this is the fact of relationships. Just because you hold your hand out in, uh, in a form of greeting doesn't mean the other person will respond to that. Just because you extend love to somebody doesn't mean they'll love you in response. Do we desire that? Yes. But when that doesn't happen, what happens in our hearts? Does bitterness happen in our hearts? Or have we, have we approached them with the word love is derived from the word agape, right? In a way that we are giving, not necessarily expecting that they are going to return with that same affection. And the reality Paul's addressing here is what, what tends to happen in your heart will be bitterness. And if you were in the community groups this last week, remember that what led to the first murder in Cain was what? It was bitterness. Right? So bitterness will always seek to put death to the other person in one form or another. If that's not in the physical death of that person, it will put them to death by means of divorce or something else, right? Saying, I just need you out of my life. 
right? Because all you're doing is taking from me. And, and the love that God is calling you to as a husband is greater than that. It's to love and love and love. And Paul's not being idealistic here. Because remember, this is all produced by the life of Christ in you. Right? Because you have been loved so greatly that you are able to love as you're called to love. So you're being poured into by Christ and you're overflowing into the person you're in a relationship with. And so you will never have the capability to do this unless you're tied into the love of Christ. So don't, uh, don't let bitterness be a part of your relationships at all. Uh, one writer I read put it this way, he says, problems centered around accumulation of small resentments leading to a slow choking of love the wife once had for her husband or the husband once had for the wife. Right? It's this accumulation that leads to this, this choking on a relationship. And this is, <clears throat> this is so real. This is more real to us. I, I know this. In this room, this is probably more real to us than the idea of love itself. Because, because this is more natural to us than life that comes from Christ. And so when, when Paul's calling us to this practice, he's not calling us to this practice out of naivety. But, but to live a life that's tied into Christ. We find this um, in Ephesians 5 uh, as, as we see Christ following the... Uh, uh, the husband following the example of Christ who has laid down his life for his church. And it says the same thing is asked of you as husbands. Lay down your life. Greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for a friend. Okay, moving on to children. Children and their relationships with their parents. This comes across just as absolutely. It says, Obedience is the godly desire of a child. The child is not allowed their favorite caveat, which always comes after but. Right? It's always, okay, I'm going to love my parents, but. And that, it's surprising here, because as I was thinking through this, Paul writes with a great understanding of what's going on. In Romans, you find him talking to the Christian to obey governmental authority. And we, we ask, why? You are being persecuted. <laughs> why would you encourage the church to obey? Right? Why would we encourage children to obey? Right? Just without any caveat to that. Without any, any extra point like, well, if, and, but, well... That's not allowed here because obedience is near the heart of God. Disobedience is not. Right? Disobedience in the New Testament especially is... Well, in the Old Testament with the fall of Satan, but in the New Testament is linked to the Antichrist, right? In the way that... Like, we have to realize that if, if we allow a great amount of room in our lives for disobedience and rebellion... 
Christ <coughs> and the heart of Christ and the life of Christ will be pushed out of our lives. They don't dwell together. Christ was obedient unto death. That's huge. Right? It's not, well, I'm obedient until, but... No, he was obedient unto death. And so these words don't always fall easily on our ears. That we don't like obedience, we don't like submission, we don't like respect. Well, what do we like? Right? Oh, well, that, well, we don't like Christ if those are the things that we set ourselves against, because that's what he's about. This is the pleasure of God, it says, for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4 points out that honoring one's father and mother is the first commandment that carries with it a promise. Honoring your father and mother, uh, honor your father and mother that all may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life. Out of the Ten Commandments, the first one that carries with it a promise. If you don't obey your parents, you can't expect long life. Right? They're the ones that, that are meant to care for you. Obviously, this is, this is coming after a relationship that's already been built between husband and wife. So that's why this is coming after that. Because there's meant to be a healthy family structure here. So the most worthy cause that a man or woman can fight in their youth is to desire the pleasure of God above their own pleasure. That is the best thing you can set yourself to do as a young person. Because it's not even the reward of a long life that is is meant to be, be the compelling factor here. The compelling factor is why? Children obey your parents because it pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord and make that your pleasure. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? How? By living according to the word of the Lord. He says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. So make this your prayer. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law, God. Um, Proverbs 1, 8-9 through 9 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland to grace your heads and a chain to adorn your neck. Jesus even did this. Jesus is our model in every relationship we have here. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our model in, in Luke 2 where it says he, he submitted himself to his parents and was raised by them. Jesus can relate, relate with us on a lot of things. Jesus had to be adopted by Joseph. Did anyone think about that? Right? For this, Mary and Joseph make a family. And then to include Jesus in that family, I had to go into that. And so provide, as, as husbands and wives, provide a, a place for your, your children to willingly submit to that, to willingly obey you, to delight in obeying you. And this comes right before fathers in the relationship with their children. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. And this is, this is really interesting because it's addressing fathers and not mothers. And this is interesting even in our, the context of our body because there's a lot more mothers than fathers here, I think. Um, and this wasn't 
this wasn't meant as as one of those, you know, everyone likes attacking the Bible, like, well, it's just because they talk about men all the time. But that's not the case. And it's not the case here, especially. Um, This is the case because men, as we talked about earlier, are meant to have a unique place as loving and moral guides to the family. Um, The responsibility of a father is, is serious in the way, and I, and I think part of why Paul is addressing the men is because not only now, but I think then also, that men have too willingly abdicated their role. Right? Well, where was, where was man when, he, when Eve ate of the fruit? Well, man was right there. He was right there abdicating his role. Right? From the very beginning. Um... Too often in the household, men don't fulfill their role. And, and it's, a, it's a curse, really, upon generation after generation after generation of men. I said we live in a sad day, an age when there is an expected separation where the fathers are known for their roles outside the home and not for their roles inside the home. Right? There's a separation that men are just expected, well, make your way out here, and then women, do your thing in here, and then just provide the bacon. Right? That's, that's not the intention of a family. The intention of a family is for children not to be frustrated because their fathers won't come home. Right? Don't, fathers, don't aggravate your children. How do you aggravate your children? Well, by not being a part of your children's lives. That's really how you aggravate your children. Right? You're, you're meant to be a part of your child's life in such a way that you're blessing them by your presence. Because your presence is a blessing in the home. The home will carry, and this is, this is a really general statement, and there's obviously a, a lot of spiritual warfare that goes against this model that Paul is presenting. There's a lot of it. And so just because there, there are things that go on in this, doesn't mean necessarily that um, that the role has been has not been fulfilled. Right? There's there's a lot there's an enemy lurking out there. Right? When Cain struggled with bitterness, where was the credit of that bitterness given to? It says because sin is lurking, Cain, don't let it overcome you. Sin is lurking to have you. So so even in a really healthy model, while this is being being carried out, there there is. Uh, there is an enemy to to this to this healthy be, because once once this takes place, this is really this amazing spiritual fortress right when you see families that are doing this um, but generally the the father the character of the father will be um, be mirrored in the character of the house. Right? If, if the father is not home, what is the, what is the house going to look like? Fatherless. That's, that's what the home is going to look like. And so, that, <coughs> excuse me. So what is being asked here is that fathers don't aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. And the word literally is dispirited. So the father is meant to be a bringing in spiritual vitality to the home. If, you, if, you're not, 
making it your goal as a father to make your, your home this spiritual uh, garden of good fruit, right? That's, that's literally, you're cultivating it, you're, you're filling it with, uh, with a vitality that wouldn't be seen unless you're there tilling it often, right? If you're not home, it'll be aggravated because, because you won't be offering anything. The, the home is meant to be this place where, um, where, where God is glorified, right? And, and that's because the father is blessing the children and loving his wife, and the wife is there loving her husband. Um, and so the, the Proverbs really just say this over and over again, train your children, your, your children will be dispirited and discouraged if you're not training them, right? if, if you're not investing in their lives, because there's things that they're not going to know naturally. So invest in them. Um, I'm just going to finish this up with three points. The first is, how is this even possible? And that's an important question, because we talk through this and we're all like, yeah, and then we look around and we're like, oh no, we, well, we're still we. <laughs> So how is this even possible? Right? How is this possible if... Um, well, I'll just take this question first. How this is possible is starting in chapter 3 of Colossians. This is possible because of what's gone on in the heavenlies to make this possible for you. God is never asking you, okay, go do something and bring it back to me. God is saying, I'm making this, po- this message has been brought to you by Jesus Christ. Right? This message has been made possible through the funding of the cross. It starts out by saying, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died in your life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all this glory. So how is this made possible? Because you have died. That's how it was made possible. If you didn't die, this isn't possible. If you're trying to live according to your old nature, it's not possible. So this is only made possible through what... Christ has done for you and through you, and unless that reality transforms your life, you're not going to see it. That's why a lot of you might, might wonder, why haven't I seen this? Because, because the reality of Christ wasn't a transforming force in your family. That's, that could be the case. Um, so we're not asked to see what we can do for ourselves, we're asked to see what Christ can do through us. And that, that literally is it. What is my role in this? Is the next question. The, our role in this is to, to be people that take responsibility for each other. We've asked the wrong questions again and again and again and tried to build our relationships upon that. The wrong questions we've asked is, well, whose fault is it? Right? We're, we're just fault finders, and that's why relationships don't work. The relationships don't work because we're always, well, we try to, you go to counselors trying to figure out, well, was it his fault or was it my fault? So I just need to know what I can work on, but then they can work on that too. And, and so, so we're always in this, this role of, 
Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go halfway, and then, and then they're going to come halfway. And, but that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus went all the way. And then he did something in you that you're willing to go all the way. Uh, in a book I'm reading called Kingdom Ethics, it says, Reconciliation does not happen by itself. It is the end product of a cycle of peacemaking that Jesus taught throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Acknowledging that we are trapped in a vicious cycle, seeking to participate in God's gracious deliverance. Taking the initiative to go to the other, seeking reconciliation. Refusing to take vengeance, affirming the other's valid interests. Repenting rather than judging, forgiving rather than withholding forgiveness. Praying for the adversary and above all, and in all love. Alright, so what role do you have? You have a role as a reconciler. And this was really brought home to me during, I'm taking seminary classes right now, during my class on, on race. Right, oftentimes I've thought, well, I, I treat people of other races well, and when they're in my presence, I'm, you know, I don't treat them any different. But what the Bible asks us to do more than that. The Bible asks us to be reconcilers, so I'm seeking out how I can bring healing in someone else's life. Why? Because you've been healed. Right? Because you've been given a gift. And that gift is just reproducing itself. Right? So if I have a brother who's hurting, my role isn't to wait for him to come, but my role is to go to him. If you have a, a wife that's hurting or a husband that's hurting, man, this is the hard word. This is the hard word is that God calls you to be a reconciler, right? To seek out reconciliation. And that might mean a lot of death in you, right? Putting to death a lot of, well, it wasn't my fault. There you go, fault finding again, right? Whose fault was it? It's not what he's asking you. He's asking you what pleases God. And, and if your question isn't first what pleases God, you'll never respect God enough to do anything. It'll always be what pleases me. And that will, you'll never have a relationship built on what pleases me. Never. Ever. It doesn't work like that. The last question is, what if I don't fit into these responsibilities? And that's, that's a real question. What if I'm... I'm a single mom, I'm a single dad, I'm a kid without parents. Where do I fit into this? <laughs> and the fact is we live uh, in a time of women at the well, right? The women at the well had five husbands, or four, and then she had an... Uh, it was a really confusing relationship, and that's where we live. We live in an age of confusing relationships. Right? And so what did Jesus offer to her? What Jesus offered to her was worship where you're at. I've come that you can worship. Right? So where's the beginning? The beginning of where I'm at is worship. Right? I'm going to come to God and I'm going to seek Him. I'm going to ask God what pleases you and I'm going to do that. You're going to have a tight relationship with God Himself. And believe me, He'll lead you and He'll guide you. Right? That shouldn't be the fear of your life. Is what's next because you're in a relationship with Him. Right? Seek him and find him. It doesn't mean that you have to go and like write letters to everyone that you pushed in lockers as a kid. Right? It, it doesn't mean you have to go and fault find in yourself. That is not what it means. 
It means that you go to God and you ask, God, I want to be so intimate with you that, that I'm just walking with you. And, and believe me, he'll bring to your conscience things that need to be taken care of. You don't need to fall fine on yourself. It's, it's not the gospel. The gospel is, okay, you've, been, you've received forgiveness. Now what does it look like to live that out? And like I said, uh, you're, so in your relationship with God, he is father, he is husband. I believe those are purposeful roles in the Bible. Um, you are wife, you are child. Um, and what this means for us as a church is that we're a church with open doors. It means we're a church where the families are open to adopt, right? Whether that's legally or just receiving people. Right? We're, we're a church where, um, where there aren't orphans and there aren't widows because you're being taken care of. And that's hard. That really calls us all to that as we're a part of that um, and remember that this is all made possible by Jesus Christ. So this all, if you leave here, and this all, you look back and you're like, Daniel had his head in the clouds if he expects this to happen. I don't expect it to happen apart from Christ. We, we don't as a church. We're powerless apart from Christ, and we need to freely acknowledge that. Because what, what begins is this respect of, not I, Oh, but it's Christ in me, and that is my hope. So that's, that's our hope, and we can share together. Encourage each other one another in that. And as you watch the children, I will close this in prayer. <coughs> oh God, I pray that you will in, encourage us just with a, a clear view of yourself. You say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and, and I believe it. That when once we respect you, respect you enough to speak into our lives and have the authority to say, do this and don't do this. Authority to say, um, go forgive. And you've given us the ability to do that. God, we, we approach that with a lot of trembling and fear, wondering what we might be called to. God, I pray that we'll know as a church just how near you are in your intimacy. God, just be our teacher and our guide. And I pray that this lesson will be for now on for us. God, you are good and your mercies endure forever and we praise you for that. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.